1: Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker and me, Nils karstow where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. For those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended for you to learn and grow as rules-based investors – And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed. Like last week's episode with Mark, where we discussed another recent research paper from Aspect Capital, which discusses the great repricing of risk and why trend-following strategies are advantageous in times of crisis, dislocation of markets, and how shocks in markets affect behavior and performance. And also want to encourage you to check out the Wednesday episode with Nathaniel Whitmore, or as you may know him, NLW, where we took our first big step into the world of crypto and the big power shifts we are experiencing in the world right now. So if you missed any of those episodes, I invite you to go back and check them out right after you finish today's episode. Jerry, always wonderful to be back with you. How are you doing? How are things where you are?
0: No, things are great. Um, my hockey team won last night. And I'm uh, wearing their shirt, and they're coming back home to play again tomorrow night. So we're not out of this thing yet. We're very, uh, very passionate about our hockey in South Florida, believe it or not.
1: Yeah, that is a bit of a surprise, but I know they're doing well. So in terms of a quick summary of the week, I'm sure there's lots of things to talk about a little later. But um, as if investing environment couldn't be more challenging, I think this week only served to a further muddy the waters a little bit. Fed Chairman Powell testified before Congress in what was once referred to as the Humphrey-Hawkins testimony. The testimony is mandated twice a year and the chairman is tasked to justify his dual mandate of keeping unemployment and inflation low. And his testimony was mostly voicing comments congressmen don't want to hear, such as acknowledging that rising interest rates poses a risk of a recession and that the employment market is running too hot. And in a perverse thinking of bond investors, that was good news. The logic goes that if the Fed chairman is thinking that the coming rate hikes could result in recession, then that means that inflation will be coming down faster than they had hoped, and therefore rates will need to be cut sooner than anticipated. Taking their cue from the bond investors, the stock jockeys interpret the logic as a signal to buy, and hence we saw a 6%-plus rise in the S&P 500 off the lows touched last week. But we should note that Powell didn't say anything in his testimony that would indicate that the committee has changed their mind about raising interest rates another 75 basis points at the end of July. But let's talk about what has been standing out to you, Jerry, since we last spoke a few weeks ago in terms of markets moves or performance, whatever, drives... Uh, sort of your attention span, um, and then of course, um, sort of your big picture observations?
0: So the obvious is that we've seen some uh, sell-off in some of our biggest profitable trades in the commodities, the grains. Uh, so that's the loose pants. is not uh, been our friend recently, we're, we're, we're. this is the tough part of loose pants. Oh, it's really easy when you talk about it and all of your trend trades are at all-time highs. But uh, when they start to sell off and you look at how far your stop is, because that's loose pants. We're letting them uh, do something, do their thing, and hopefully go back to new highs and keep going. But, you know, I doubt if all of these will. And so maybe we've seen the peak in some of these grains. Uh, And definitely in the base metals, we've already pretty much flat those. Those trends have definitely had major damage done to them and are probably, in most of them, shorts now. The big rallies this week... And in, um, the interest rates are something we haven't seen in a while. It's been very volatile and violent. And uh trend follower probably trying to vol management on some of those and keep creating some uh, counter trend or going against the major trend and then people trying to get long at the lows in the bonds and the short-term rates. It seems that uh, it doesn't really matter what Powell says. He's like a grandfather sitting on the side of the bed reading you a bedtime story. He... You're just happy he's there and he's talking and he doesn't seem to be too uptight and he uh he's very comforting so i think some of the things that were coming out of actually his meeting and what he was actually saying were not great <clears throat> but it didn't matter people wanted to the market wanted to go higher in stocks and in bonds and it went quite a bit higher so we don't i don't know if these uh, trends are damaged uh or if this is the lows but it does remind me a bit of 2008 where we saw you know over the summer a large drawdown in stocks big last big bear market and but violent you know four percent rallies a few times during that during that uh, so this is why loose pants kind of works <clears throat> overall On any one certain trade or group of trades or a year or two whatever it's not going to can definitely underperform I'm sure it's underperforming vol management strategies now but uh it works because these trends are still intact, even though sometimes these uh, drawdowns against our positions are so uncomfortable. But you know, it's the computer or the history or the markets—they don't care how uncomfortable we are. It's just going to give you the results, which is uh, you make more money, you have bigger trends if you have your stops uh, further away from the market—not too far, but you know, in a uh, in the range that still is pretty uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, I no, completely agree. And maybe for people who don't necessarily follow futures markets as closely as we do, just to give you some examples of what's been going on this month, I mean, natural gas is down 23% uh, just month to date. Cotton down 29%. Canola, for those who trade that, is down 26%. Uh, and some of the bigger ones like wheat uh, down almost 14% and copper down almost 13%. So you're absolutely right. There has been some um, some big corrections and even in energy uh, despite kind of all the uh, talk about crises in energy uh, markets, uh, crude oil is still down uh, more than six percent so far this month, um, and of course we know equities um, are down four uh, or five percent still. So you're absolutely right, and I think overall that would be also my interpretation of sort of the trend following space this week has been an, a real correction week. I think we've that we haven't seen for for a while, uh, many of the markets reversing there long-term trends, uh, uh, maybe I shouldn't say reversing, but correcting their long-term trends. Fixed-income markets around the world saw these big correction in price to the upside against the longer-term downtrends, and I'm pretty confident to say that the fixed-income sector is probably where we saw the main damage done in the trend-following portfolios. Equity markets you know, they did have a big move to the upside. Uh, they are in a bear market, uh, at least to the official ways of calling it a bear market. But I'm not so sure how much damage uh, that they this move did to uh, to trend followers. I think a lot of uh, exposure is very much driven in terms of look-back period for, for trend followers. Because if you have a longer-term look-back period, actually equities are not down that much uh, still. Maybe shorter-term models uh, is a different thing. And then, of course, you had, as I said, energy markets that saw uh, another down week, actually, and that might have caused a little bit of correction in performance. Um, where I uh, and, and then, as Jerry, you said, um, where certainly we also saw some losses would have been in the grains, um, where we had many of the grain markets dropping 10% or so uh, uh, in this week alone. Um, and you know what's kind of interesting, Jerry? It's funny, because not long ago, Jerome Powell came out and said the reason why they focus on core inflation, so without food and energy, is because they can't control food and energy. And so I'm a little bit suspicious that the two main sectors that are being beaten down at the moment is food and energy. And, you know, like we have the plunge protection team uh, coming in when equities are being beaten down too much. I just wonder if there's another team in that building saying, well, hang on, energy and food, we need to get those down because that's obviously causing some inflation. I don't know. It just seems a little bit uh, suspicious, uh, I have to say. Anyways, meat and metal markets probably had a little bit of a positive contribution, I would imagine. And the current sec- currency sector was probably flat for most managers. Jerry, we have so many questions uh, this week, which is fantastic. So thanks for that. So we're going to dive into those. But then on top of that, we, you also brought some really good topics, too, that we can uh, dive into. And uh, yeah, so we'll see. It's going to be a packed program uh, without a doubt. The first question that came in is actually just one that came in uh, very shortly, uh, or that I noticed very shortly before coming on. Jerry, so you may not have seen this. Um, he It's from Andre. He writes, I've been listening to your podcast for a few years and went back to the beginning to listen to the episodes I missed. I really appreciate the amazing information and that you and your co-host provide. You've inspired me to begin my trend-following journey, investing uh, in journey with your firm done. I wish I had funds available earlier, but I did capture some of the nice gains in, uh, for, in the real estate markets to fund my trend-following investment. Being new to investing in the space, I have a few questions for those of you who have decades of experience. So here goes. One, after such strong gains in the first half of this year, is it typical that the current trends would continue at a similar pace or is there usually a reversal for the period uh, ahead uh, or for a period of time? And then the second question is, last week stock markets dropped dramatically because of inflation concern and this week the narrative has miraculously changed to deflation, what a difference a week can make? Assuming a recession is coming soon, already started? How would this affect the current trends and returns for CTAs? So I don't know if you want to dive into those two uh, questions. I'll add whatever whatever I can at the end. I don't
0: think there's anything really typical that we should expect uh, <clears throat> from a first half to the second half type of situation. Even if it is, I don't think it's anything you can rely upon. Uh, our whole premise is that we're, we have these rules that uh, <clears throat> buy breakouts or get in line with the moving averages, some sort of price-based trend uh, methodology, and we just try to ignore everything else. So I don't really uh, and take advantage of others or take advantage of situations where people do pay attention to uh, patterns like uh, what happens in the first half, what happens in the second half. and As painful as it is, it is to give back open profit and look at the look at this, give back and say, well, maybe I should have taken some off the table, not followed my rules, Uh, realized that it was due for a correction, these sort of subjective statements. Um, Overall, you're going to do better by just paying attention to those trend rules. What about you, Niels?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So what what I would say to you, André, is just that, of course, uh, even big trends don't go in a straight line. So you're absolutely right in saying that um, you know, or maybe you're not saying it, but you're certainly suggesting that you know it's not unusual that uh, after a period of, of of strong performance that we get some kind of consolidation. Sometimes it doesn't materialize to much of a of a correction performance, uh, and sometimes it does, and 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 we just don't have any ways of of knowing that in advance. Um, so although it can be kind of um, hard not to anticipate what might come next in terms of trend following performance, I think a lot of investors try and figure that out, especially if they know what the positions are in the portfolio. But I would advise uh, against that, because we really don't know where the performance may come from, um, and um, and then uh, you go on to say uh, about well, uh, one week uh, we have one narrative that drives markets, and the next week we have another narrative, and and I think that's just how markets work, um, and uh, and the way it affects CTAs is that on a week by week basis it, it doesn't really affect us, um, but if the narrative changes. For a while, and therefore trends change for a while, that's when the longer-term trend followers would start to adapt to a new narrative. But on a week-by-week basis, it doesn't really change a lot. Of course, you can have really big moves, of course, and that might trigger some reductions in, in positions and, and so on and so forth. But certainly for the longer-term um, strategy, such as the one you're now invested in, it doesn't change a lot whether equities go up for, for a week or two uh, as such. Um, so let's leave it with that and let's move on to Ryan. Uh, Ryan has two questions and, and they're quite long questions, so I'm going to do my best to read it out. As People who listen to the podcast, they know that I'm dyslexic, so I often butcher up these long uh, questions, so uh, bear with me here. Ryan writes, I absolutely love the show. Uh, uh, the, the content you have putting out uh, and the guests uh, you have are incredible. I first read about using ATR to calculate stop loss and targets in the Turtle Traders book by Michael Covell. Jerry and some other people mention it often in your podcast. Could you break down using ATR to determine an initial stop, trailing stop loss, exit... And measuring price movement for the day in a simple way so that someone who is fairly new to trading can understand. I'm extremely interested in using ATRs to come up with a way to trade all markets with a similar strategy despite the volatility or other differences in the markets. I looked into it a little myself and found uh, out that it's very complex to me. Of course... There are a lot of variables between which time frame uh, we're using, how loose we want the stops to be, and what settings we choose for the ATR. I'm not looking for a recommendation for ATR setting, more of, an, uh, no, more of an education on how I can set up my own strategies in a logical way using ATR. An example or two would be very helpful, so I can understand how to learn how to do this myself. I figured I would ask you, because Jerry and your other uh, guests have first-hand knowledge on the subject, and I would really love your professional opinion. Thanks so much for the knowledge on your show and look forward to the new episode, blah, blah, blah. Okay, um, thanks, Ryan, for that. We'll come to your second question in a second. Um, but Jerry, maybe you can, you've can you been using ATRs for decades, so maybe you can help out Ryan a little bit in terms of making it easier to, to understand, so to speak. Yeah, I think ATR
0: is an easy concept, and it's. I highly recommend it, but um, I'm not going to let you slide, Ryan, on this one statement you made, which is uh, I first read about it, to calculate stop loss and targets. Well, we don't want to calculate targets. I don't know what you mean by targets, profit targets, no. So it is. uh, I use it exclusively to set the stop loss. So I have two exits. One is the trailing stop based on a breakout, the X day low. If it's a long trade and uh, that kicks in when the trade is at a profit but uh, all the losses are probably going to be taken by this uh, atr based stop loss so it's not difficult to calculate and you subtract uh, your stop loss uh, amount in multiples of atr from the entry price and you have that as your the lowest price that you're going to get out of if you're assuming a long i know that some people use the ATR-based stops for exiting profitable trades as well. And like I said, I don't do that. Um, I have done it. I'm going to confess, you know, that I have uh, succumbed to doing that. And I don't think it's a good idea. The moving average crossovers and the breakout exits are better ways to handle the exiting the profitable trades and or the trades that are you know, get you out before the ATR stop loss. So I don't like uh, these, I think they call them chandelier exits. I know Rich uses it. So Rich is a highly influential trader in my life, so I hesitate to, but this is one of the things I don't like about them. In essence, um, so as the ATR expands, and if let's say we're using a 10 ATR from the from the peak of the trade to get out of the trade if it falls 10 ATRs. Well, the problem with that is that the ATR can expand. So it could actually be a lower price today than it was the day before because the ATR is expanding and we're multiplying it times this 10 or whatever number you're using. Um, and thus the, AT, the stop the trailing stop is getting further and further away, which is, does not happen with moving averages or with breakouts. Aha, but they're pretty smart guys, so they have a way to uh, mitigate that, which is you don't allow that to happen. So you calculate your trailing stop based upon ATRs, and if it's lower than yesterday, you just use yesterdays. Well, the problem with that is it's not being consistent. You're not always exiting at the same place like I would at the 100-day low. They have a little caveat. Well, it's 10 ATRs from the peak, unless it's lower than it was yesterday, so I'll make it yesterday. And I don't... Th- now, with always with most things. Even though I don't like it, I, it probably... These people still trade. They still make money. It doesn't seem to bother or matter that much. Uh, however, I don't like it.
1: Now, um, okay, so just again, just to reiterate for you, Ryan, so essentially at the point of entry, um, you can calculate the ATR. It's it's very easy to do. You can just look it up. You probably already know how to do that. And then you subtract that from the entry price, how many ATRs you want your stop to be at. And it's that distance from your entry price to the stop that you can then use to determine how many contracts you want to trade because that's what you're going to turn into dollars in actual dollar loss. And therefore, based on the contract size, you can figure out how many contracts you want to trade. But I would just want to say one caveat, just a question for you, Jerry, because I, I agree with you about, you know, expanding ATRs and all this stuff. But what if you just said, well, I'm just going to keep, I'm going to use the same entry ATR throughout the trade. I'm not going to, the ATR is not going to change, but I'm going to use that, and I'm just going to move it along uh, the way, meaning I'm going to subtract the same ATR from the highest high in that trade. Would that make it more consistent, do you think in in the way you think about it? I know you don't use it, but would it be more acceptable? Uh,
0: I don't like that either. I've done that as well, unfortunately. Um, I think the principle here is that it's not very loose pants. You know, both of them are too, a bit too precise and it's, the moving average and the breakout exits are more in the moment and are are being adjusted by what's happening in the market. The reason we don't like we prefer like this atr exit is that if you just leave it to the the whatever happens with the moving average or breakout, you you can just see over and over how that looks really scary. <laughs> now, indeed, if you did if you did a back test, the computer would say, "I'm going to pay you a lot of money for being brave with those moving averages and breakouts." And we're like, "I don't know. I don't think I like it as much because it just can really turn out ugly sometimes." But I think this is the problem: is that and we're. Uh, I remember Oleg yesterday saying, "You know, when you go down to the coffee shop, you're not expecting to get free coffee." So when you're getting in these markets and you're expecting to make a lot of money, it's going to be costly mentally. You know, you're going to have to risk some of these open profits and watch some of them go away. And then that's how you can morally and ethically and financially justify all this money you're making. How could it be so easy? It's not. It is not. But just, just wrap it up into this nice little bow with these trailing, ATR trailing stops. We never give back too much. We never have these issues. We never have that much volatility. And just we'll just be happy little campers. You know, that's I just don't think that's how it works. The loose pants uh, are really, you just can't get looser pants and more money than using these breakouts. And everything other than the breakouts is really trying to more meet our human needs than it is what really works in the markets.
1: Yeah, that, that's true. And I think the other advantage and again i know that some of our other friends on the podcast they use different methodologies and so on and so forth but what what i will say about breakout in itself it is very clean i mean you actually always know when you're getting in when you're getting out Uh, now you mentioned moving averages which is of course not precise in that sense you don't well you can through some More advanced math, I guess you can calculate in advance where it's going to be. But certainly a moving average crossover, you don't really know in advance where it's going to cross over, so to speak. So, of course, the breakout uh, exit that you talk about, say if you're in a long trade, you use X number of days low to get out, so on and so forth. But do you use the, the moving averages you mentioned, do you use that in the same model so it just picks one of them? Or are they two different versions, so to speak. So one model might use uh, X number of days low, the other one uses a moving average? Or That's the way I would do
0: it. I don't use okay. moving averages, but I think you don't want to combine and have two exits. You want to have one model maybe with the moving average exit and another maybe with the breakout. The, the, another sort of problem, which is kind of like not a problem, but a problem that people can see with breakouts is they don't move up so today's uh, limit up, where you've just at all-time equity highs and you've made all this money, it does not change the breakout necessarily. The moving average will change. It'll be influenced by the highs. And so if that feels more warm. And of course, if it feels warm, that means it's not as good. So <laughs> these breakouts are ruthless and brutal, and we hate them. Uh, I'd like to see, you know, if, you, if you're going to make a lot of money today, we got to book some of that that moving average just books a little bit all the time as the market moves higher. We just love it. It makes us feel good at night. But the breakouts don't do that. They just make more money. Which is like our whole my the whole turtle trend following mantra, which is do the hard thing, do the right thing, seek out hard things to do to put yourself and the minority of people in the markets who are looking for easier things and better ways to capture profits. Uh, we should be more worried about getting out of a big profit than we are about capturing that profit and not letting some of it go away. More worried, what does that mean? You know, that's a deep subject, but uh, psychologically we have the opposite. We're way too concerned about giving up profit versus, wow, just got out of my last copper piece that makes me feel nervous, set by no one, set by no one. We're so happy to get out and take that profit, but it should be kind of the reverse
1: and have those feelings and that philosophy manifest itself inside of our systems. Yeah, you mentioned the word easy, and I think that sometimes we um, maybe we do ourselves a little bit of a disservice because we, I think sometimes we talk about trend following being easy, but that's not what we mean. I think what we're saying is that trend following is it's simple in concept, and it may even be simple to to create uh, for that matter, but it's just not easy to do because that's where all the psychology and all the other things comes comes in. So, so I just want to make that distinction between the two. Now, Ryan follows up, and I think I may already have answered your question here, Ryan. You follow up and ask whether... Email whether, whether we could give a, an example as to why do you end up with a smaller position when there's more volatility um, than, uh, than, than otherwise. And so the point is, as I mentioned before, so if you have your entry signal and the volatility is high, so you get a high ATR, that means the distance to your entry is going to be further away but if you have a finite amount of, of of dollars that you want to risk, say, for example, $10,000 on a trade, the further away the stop is, the fewer contracts you can trade before you end up losing $10,000 if you're stopped out. So it's really just very simple. Measure the distance to your stop and use that as the basis for calculating your position size or the number of contracts based on the contract size for each of the markets you trade and then you should and just do it in Excel and, and take a few different ones where you change the the stop level and it'll become very easy for you to see that, okay, with a bigger ATR and a stop further away, I end up with fewer contracts than if the ATR is smaller uh, and the stop is closer. So it's going to be super simple, so, uh, Ryan, for, for you to, to figure that out. All right, let's move on to a question from David. David writes, A question for the podcast, or I would be happy to take the answer here. Ah, okay. I know where, where that came from. So, um, yes, I wasn't quite sure, David, if you wanted me to answer it in an email or whether you wanted to um, to have it on the podcast, but I know we spoke and or, or emailed and we're going to do it here in the podcast. So, the question is, for systematic trend-following strategies, can you achieve comparable returns in a mutual fund versus offshore, of, or, or more specifically, in a public fund versus a private vehicle? Or are there limitations within the 40-act fund structure uh, that would constrain returns? So both you and I, Jerry, have a little bit of experience with these things. Well, what is your general perception in terms of returns we can deliver to our clients in a mutual fund structure compared to in a offshore or onshore LLC structure in the U.S.?
0: Well, I've done this, and we currently do it. Um, I don't think there is any reason you can't have the same returns. I, yeah, There's no risk constraints, really, that I know of. Now, I will say this, that I'm obsessed with adding markets, and we trade 200 markets now. Uh, in the private fund, I've never seen a mutual fund trade more than 50 or 60. I don't know why. But it's just something you'd have to ask them. I think uh, there's no restriction that I know of. The only, the biggest difference is just the fee structure. The LL, the private fund can have um, higher or lower fees. You could have a incentive fee where the mutual fund doesn't have an incentive fee. But uh, usually the fixed fee, the management fee is higher than a mutual fund. So... ETFs the same thing I don't there's no reason you can't have 200 markets in an ETF I just met with ETF people who run ETFs and mutual funds for managed futures and I confirmed all of this with them in New York last week, so I've run them and I run one now, so I can't think think of a reason It's purely it's purely our choice to trade 65 markets and probably this year just by luck, the mutual fund might be slightly outperforming the private with 200 markets. So that, you know, obviously that can, uh, that can happen. But uh, we just chose, it's a choice.
1: Okay. Yeah, and, and David, I can sort of add to that because again, also on our side uh, at Dunn, we, uh, we do have both uh, mutual funds and, um, and we have U.S. onshore and we have offshore and we have European onshore. And I think Jerry is completely uh, correct in saying the, the biggest difference is is let's leave out the European onshore for a second, also known as usage fund. But for the other ones, it's not really the strategy that's different. It, it'll it be the cost to service providers. And it's definitely more expensive to go via a, a public fund like a mutual fund in the US uh, typically compared to an LLC or an offshore fund. Even though, of course, as Jerry says, the manager can set the fees in the offshore and the LLC and 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 and, and you know to, to be the same if they want to. But generally speaking, we find that it is more expensive to use a mutual fund. So that's one thing. There are actually ways. I know you mentioned this, Jerry, that you can't have a performance fee in a mutual fund. You can, we do that. You can, but then you have to introduce a swap for those funds who who want that in instead of a management fee. So that's the only thing I would say. And then finally, in the uses fund world for those who are investing in European funds. There are definitely restrictions on risk, uh, so there you you could rot into differences in terms of can I have the exact same exposure as in my offshore fund because there are limits to how much exposure you can have uh, in a in a users fund. So there you can have some differences for sure.
0: Oh yeah, good point. I've I've had uh, I have our mutual fund did start out with that. Uh, total return swap, we had an embedded incentive fee as well, and that's we converted away from that. Uh, and then I think uh, I have seen some emails flying around in my company that the SEC is looking into the same idea, Niels, where they want to look at some of these positions, like euro dollars that have a low, vol- low ATR, and so we have these huge positions, and they're like, oh, that's too much notional risk. And so, you know, you've got the non-CTA, ATR people nosing around in our business. And so they'll probably get around to limiting um, some of those contracts as well, like they do in the in Europe.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, here's a question that's going to put a big smile on your face, uh, Jerry, because it's from Paul. And Paul writes, question for Jerry from a fellow University of Virginia alum. So, uh Jerry has been talking lately about loose pants, meaning that he has loose trailing stops on his positions once they are in a substantial profit position. I don't recall hearing him give much actual detail uh, on this in past episodes, possibly because the details are proprietary. I'm curious to have a better sense of at what point does he switch from the initial stop to the loser trailing stop, which I think we already talked about. We'll repeat that, of course. How does he define the size of the trailing stop? And then third, does he incorporate uh, at all the rules that I've heard mentioned from the turtles where the exit would be defined by a new high or low uh, on some time scale in the opposite direction of the trade, i.e. 20-day low or 50-day low, whatever it might be. Thanks a lot to all of you for everything you give in the podcast. Keep keep up the good work. And then it says, and go Wahoos. I th- I'm sure that must be a Virginia thing. Yes, uh,
0: so it's good to hear from a fellow Wahoo. And uh, if I'm usually not wearing my Tampa Bay Lightning shirt, I'm, it could be a UVA 2019 NCAA Basketball Championship shirt. So I am um, still ha- haven't gotten my tattoo honoring that uh, basketball championship. So my wife keeps reminding me.
1: Man well, you know what me. happened to, um, what's his name, Norgratz, who tattooed Luna on his arm. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure you really want a tattoo of any kind, Jerry.
0: Oh, well, I know, I was drinking wine. Uh, some of my best tweets come when I'm drinking wine and some of my big promises that I'm unable to fulfill as well. Um, So that's a good question. Um, He's got it right. Loose pants means a loose trailing stop, so you can give the market. It's not too close to the market, so you can give it uh, room to cultivate and sort of create these outlier trades. Um, The further away the the exit is, the 100-day low is pretty good. That's pretty loose. The 200-day low, looser, better. Okay, why not just do the 200-day low versus the 100-day? Well, you do both and some things in between. Uh, you know, when you get these big profits, the 200 day low um, stayed in there. It helped you with create that outlier, get that outlier. It's the reason it is an outlier. You didn't get out, but when it turns around, you have a lot of profit to give back, possibly sometimes. So that's the problem. Um, so we initially start with uh, the systematic trader, trend follower. He knows the entry, so he gets in on that entry and then. Immediately, the computer and calculates uh, that ATR stop loss and the 100-day low. So we don't uh, switch from anything. We're keeping both of those numbers. So we get in at 100. Maybe the stop loss is at 90. And the 100-day low is 80. So 90 is higher than 80. So we're going to get out at 90 first. But then at some point, as the market keeps going, the 100-day low moves up above the ATR stop loss. It's maybe 95 or you know, the market's up to 130, so maybe the 100-day low is 120. So that's sort of how it works. Um, we're not defining it other than we are incorporating that turtle strategy of the exit is defined as that 100-day low, which, uh, you know, could be anything. It's not very precise. It's very loose. Some trades that 100-day that low can give back lots of profit, and sometimes it can't. Once again, it's whatever that 100-day low is. It's not this precision calculation based upon trailing multiples of the ATR from the peak. You know, It's too buttoned up and too tightened up. It's too perfect. The 100-day low is messy. It, uh, it creates some of these large givebacks uh, that you've talked about before, like what is my distance to trailing stop? If it's all buttoned down with a multiples of the ATR, it's going to, you can control it. Well, the market doesn't want to be controlled. It wants to control you. It wants to scare you. If you're going to take profit out of it, you have to uh, allow that to occur.
1: Yeah, and, and what I love about the explanation uh, that you just gave to Paul here is that it's really for everyone to understand, again, going back to what, what we talked about before, simplicity. This is simple, we are not trying to do something that's you know overly complicated and certainly not optimized in any way, shape, or form. Again, we're not saying it's easy to do in practice to follow it psychologically, but it is simple, and that's what makes it dependable. We often talk about systems being, oh, I, or I maybe it's me talking mostly about things. You know, we're trying to do something that when it's simple, it's more robust. But maybe robust is kind of a loose term. Maybe it's better to say it's dependable. Because you know what the 100-day low is. There's no question about it. So you you can depend on the fact that the strategy is going to take you out at a 100-day low. It's that simple. So, yeah, I love that explanation, Jerry.
0: Uh, Yeah, it's very um, objective and rules-based. And it reminds me a bit, Niels, I'm going to like to pick this up in a future conversation with the group, but it reminds me a bit of... um, the S and P, you know, it's it's rules based. No one can beat it. It has great performance. Uh, it has big drawdowns, but it's rules based and it's not difficult. You know, you can buy the S and P or calculate the cap weightings yourself, and it's out there for you to use. And uh, if you don't like it, then that's the biggest complaint. I don't like it. Uh, well, you know, that doesn't sound very scientific to me or very rules based to me. So I think in some way, these breakout systems, these classic trend following, they have all sorts of problems with them that we don't like. They're just hard to beat. And everyone, when we explain one entry, one exit, and a stop loss, someone could say, how could you keep explaining something that's so straightforward and objective? How can people continue to come up with other ways to ask these questions? It can't be the way that you're explaining it. And we're like, it is. Because we know, we anticipate, because we've done this, we're living for 39 years on my part, it is unlikable. And once you get handed that as a young person or a really smart person, it's almost like, now let's get going. What do you mean get going? We're done. We've just been handed these rules. Oh no, 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 no. Look at the problems that we're going to see with these rules. The ups and downs, the Profit gives back the pain and the suffering, but the computer says at the end of the day we're going to do well. We're going to perform as well as can be expected. Uh, we can do better. We've got to do better. I can't handle this.
1: <laughs> well, I I love the fact that you remind you you reminded everyone about the fact that we kind of been saying the same thing now for for a while. Uh, and I was just looking at the number. In fact, we've done this for 198 episodes. We've talked about trend following in different ways, but it's really coming back to the same concepts. But it is good to hear that people are still finding new ways of asking some of these questions, so that we have a chance to uh, to uh, to share, you know, what we what we love about it. Anyways, question from Victor, um, and I think maybe there's a follow up from Victor as well. So let's start with number one. Thank you, Jen. It's a great podcast, been listening for years. My first question likely for Jerry, but wouldn't mind comment from any of the other guests or hosts. Regarding classical trend strategy, first, there's an ATR or similar initial stop. At some point, a trailing stop takes over, presumably at some distance from the highest high or highest close. On the trailing stop, or the trailing stop is a moving average or risk price channel... It's only in the last case that I see that I can see Jerry's reported 200 200 ATR drawdown in Tesla being possible. Question, am I missing something there? How does a trading stop accommodate such a large drawdown? Are the uh, are the tighter stops hanging from the high close or moving average, not classical trend following? I've been doing trend following all, uh, on single stocks for over a decade. Added commodity ETFs recently. The former are selected through an all-time all-time high filter and latter by breakout uh, price breakout. Both use a hanging ATR trading stop. Performance over the decade has been quite acceptable, not mind-blowing. Now, of course, Victor, the great thing is we've really touched upon this through other questions already, but I'll let Jerry just summarize and maybe comment on why you can have in an ATR and I wouldn't call it drawdown. I would just call it the give back because not, it's not a drawdown when you have something like the uh, Tesla example that you mentioned. So, but I'll let you, Jerry, just set the, the record straight here.
0: Oh, no, I appreciate this. Victor made me think about some other things that would be worth saying. Um, so he's 100% right. Uh, how can this happen unless you have a, a, a channel? <laughs> That's exactly what happens. You have this channel which is pays no attention to the profit in the trade. And all I can say is, when you research this, it works really well. Not paying attention to the open trade profit and leaving yourself open, if you have a 500 ATR profit in Tesla, you may have a 200 ATR drawdown, more or less. And in some respects, of course, you could see how logical that is, that you never would have gotten the 500 ATRs if you had a a stop that was tighter, and so as painful as that is, you, it makes more money. <clears throat> and so it's not a loss, as Neil said. It's not really a drawdown in the sense that it's anything uh, harming your capital. It's a profit give back. If you remember Tesla, that's a great example. That's why when I read this question, I wanted to, so happy he asked it. Because I've said this on, before, is that when I first put on Tesla, the ATR was really small. And I was able to have a large position and the ATR and Tesla over the past after that just has skyrocketed. So I had this unusually large position because it was my risk was based upon the entry and taking that small loss. And then it made 50 ATRs quickly. And then it gave all 50 back. And then it went right back to new highs, taking off, going up in this legendary move that we're all familiar with. And I maintained my current position And it was just, that's how it became a 5ATR profit with a large drawdown. Having to, being committed to using the rules systematically and not taking profits off the table or using a separate rule to exit, I was subject to that drawdown. Now, here's another thing that happens. This is a real bummer. If I would have gotten out and tried to protect that initial 50ATR profit, trying to or not trying to, but had an exit breakout, moving average, any type of exit that have gotten me out of and preserved some of that 50, maybe not on purpose, but it happened to be less loose pants and it would have gotten me out of some of that Tesla with a profit, half the profit, 25 ATRs, whatever, I would have had to resize when it went back to the highs at a much higher ATR. So I would have made much less money strictly based upon the ATR. And so this is the bummer. Another thing that makes, that when the computer does all of this analysis over 40 years and hundreds of markets, this is what comes out in the wash, which is, wow, you have some of these amazing moves that's scary. You know, 500 ATR profit, that's scary. 200 ATR give back, ridiculous. Who does this? People who want to make the most amount of money. That's who does it. But you only get them by not giving up that initial ATR at the entry. Now maybe you could have a uh, some uh, other exits, you know, the hundred another type of trend following breakout exit that would have gotten you out of a quarter of the position, half the position that you would have had to get back in and have an elevated ATR. Yeah, okay. So that sucks, but that happens. But Uh, Having multiple entries and exits, uh, sometimes the big benefit is you don't give up on that initial entry that had that really small ATR that allowed you to have this outsized position. It turned out to be outsized because Tesla went on a crazy run and the vol really picked up. And that's another downside to the vol management. Once again, you're trying to manage this market, manage this move. We got to do something. And if you don't do anything and just let the breakouts work, you're going to make more money. It's only fair that you make more money because you're going to have these big, huge drawdowns, uh, um, you know, profit givebacks, this volatility. And if you, if you want to take that off the table and wash it away because it's too nerve-wracking for you, then, you know,
1: obviously you're going to accept smaller profits. And maybe that's another way of also um, trying to explain this concept of after a period of time, let's say a frustrating period of time where there's been not not, not many trends, and therefore we probably as, a, as an industry or as a strategy, we probably lost a little bit of money uh, every month for a period of time. But as that happens, it's usually because markets are consolidating. So what it does, it actually brings down a potential ATR stop down, meaning that you once you do get the big breakout, what turns out to be the big breakout, you will have a decent side position on because the markets leading into that breakout was just playing around with you and doing nothing, giving you nothing. But what it did was it gave you the opportunity to put on a really nice position with no more risk. This is the whole point. We're not taking more risk just because we put on more contracts. We're still risking the same 25 basis points or 20 basis, whatever it might be. But it sets us up really nicely. And that's the other thing that maybe we don't talk much about actually uh, on the podcast and, and trying to explain the beauty of trend following. But it's actually giving us a lot of these very interesting opportunities, um, like you just explained with with Tesla. So, so that's another side to it. Do you want to do this follow-up uh, from Victor? I know there was sure. one. Yeah. Okay. Victor writes, hello, it's Victor again, with a clarification request. In some of the recent discussions around capital allocation to positions and capital constraints, there were some interesting comments which are difficult to understand. There was a discussion of number of markets versus number of possible open positions, in the sense that one scans markets to find positions, under the assumption that markets is quite a bit, uh, quite a bit larger than positions. There are a couple of things worth explaining because the discussion could use some clarification. This is my understanding: each risk, each system risks a small amount, say twenty five basis points as signals are triggered the amount at uh, uh, of risk i think it should say keeps growing through capital allocation to each trade until either all systems are triggered or uh, on all markets or one of one is constrained by capital margin requirements which would require either shrinking existing positions to accommodate new ones or passing on new signals the discussion on the podcast seems to indicate with that with markets and systems, one would have market system buckets and the portfolio would be divided into these mini buckets. Any uh, of the yet-to-be-triggered buckets uh, would be in cash. This doesn't make sense to me as it implies equal capital allocation as opposed to equal risk allocation to each market system bucket. Would be nice to hear you all discuss these, uh, the ideas around what to do as more signals are triggered, And what to do when you have more signals than capital to continue trading your preferred risk allocation? Or do you actually bucket capital to systems and therefore end up with large cash position? Now, this is a difficult question um, to read, uh, let alone, I'm sure, for the listeners to understand, Victor. So we're going to do our best. But I think, and I'll take a stab at this first, um, Jerry, and then you can correct me. I think, Victor, maybe you've misunderstood a little bit some of the things we do Um, the way we do trend following. Because we actually, uh, and and obviously I'm just generalizing here because people do it differently, of course, but generally speaking, you're going to allocate a risk level to any one market, and that could be 20 basis points. And if you have two systems that you trade for each market, then in general, you would just take half of that when you get the first signal and the other half when you get the other signal. So, you're never going to run out of capital because you know if you set the right level of risk per market and you know what your portfolio is, you know exactly how much you're going to end up with your max, what's going to be your maximum risk. And of course, you're never going to want to get even close to using all your cash as margin because then you're over trading, in our opinion. Usually, I would say 15 to 30% of, of cash would be used for margin purposes at a Normally established uh, trend following CTA, no more than that. the rest would the rest would sit in cash. So we're never running out of cash uh, if it's a fully funded uh, investment. so so that is actually why it's 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 super simple. Now, if you introduce more systems, obviously you would have to and you want to keep the same risk uh, overall risk level, you would have to trade smaller for every time you have a a, a system trigger. Or if you introduce more markets, you would have to trade smaller to end up with the same total risk per market. Anything to add, Jerry, or a different way of explaining it? Yes, a little bit. I wanted just to get into a
0: couple of things he said, because he's bringing up a very good point that actually, I think you and I discussed before we went on air. Um, But in general, yes, I mean, you got it all right, which is that... um, we use futures markets that are like maybe 10 to 1 leverage. So we have always have plenty of cash. Um, if you can use the futures market and you use more than 15 to 30% that Niels mentioned, then in my opinion, you're probably trading too large. Okay. That being said, um, he brings up a really good point here. If I can find it. It is that which would require either shrinking existing positions to accommodate new ones or passing on new signals. Okay, so that's what you don't ever want to do. You don't want to put on, you want to get out of all of your trades using your system exit. Uh, Passing on new signals is no go, no good. You can never pass on a trade. you got to faithfully execute these systems, do all the trades. So you want to set your leverage to a point uh, where you're able to do all of the trades and not have to uh, exit positions for money management reasons or for margin reasons, uh, because this is discretionary exiting. You know, it's not system exits. So really, it's up to you to set your risk level, whether it's stocks where you only get two to one leverage or futures where you get 10 to one, maybe. For me, it's a combination. I get I trade currencies, commodities, and interest rates in the futures markets and stocks, in the cash market, where there is some leverage or but not as not as much as futures. So regardless, you're setting up your entire trading strategy to accommodate all trades as they come along. So you never have to pass and you never have to exit them uh, for any other reason other than the the one exit and the
1: stop loss. All right. Thanks for all the questions, guys. That was great. Keep them coming as as usual. Info at toptradersonplot.com. That's the email address. Now we're going to move on to some topics that Jerry brought along. Um, So that's going to be fun and interesting. If you follow, which I hope you do, uh, Jerry on Twitter, you may have seen some of them, but we're going to dig into them a little bit uh, in more detail and as usual, I only really see the kind of the, the headline of the, of the topic. Uh, so Jerry's going to expand on it a little bit, and then we'll see uh, where we go with this. But the first one uh, is a tweet uh, that relates to an article from Institutional Investors, as far as I remember. And your heading, to me, Jerry was, alts mean different things to different people. So why don't you uh, enlighten us a little bit about um, what what the, what the issue was here?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's multiple articles this week about how institutions are not happy with their alternatives or hedge funds. They might as well um, continue to focus mostly on cost of um, their investments. And any sort of diversification is going to be uh, different types of stocks in different countries or different growth and value and private equity uh, or hedge funds that are long short, you know, that have a stock bias, like we've seen some of the famous stock hedge funds this year, down 50%, 30%. And uh, so when we talk about alts, we'd like for people to think about commodities and futures and trend following and a typical CTA diversified trend following strategy, which I try to string those words together a lot in my tweets because they, I don't want to, they're necessary. CTA, uh, Trend following is different than other people's type of trend following. The diversification of CTAs offer is pretty unique. Trade a lot of markets, all the markets: fixed income, FX, commodities, stocks, long and short. Um, this will give you, uh, which all of those managers are probably up anywhere from ten to thirty this year. So, if you, uh, but it just happens that when you read these articles, there's like no mention. <laughs> And they're shocked. There's, there's no mention of CTA diversified trend following, but, and they're shocked that alts have not, alts that they, cons- that they, in their bucket of alts, which is PE and stock hedge funds, they're not helping. They're not, they're not doing their job. Yeah, they're not doing their job because they're highly correlated with your long equities. So it's, uh, I mean, I'm beyond being frustrated. I'm not beyond frustrated. I'm just beyond caring. It's just a little silly. To Because uh, people know about CTAs and they know about commodities now, that, but uh, the articles keep coming as if we don't exist.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it, it reminds me, when I hear you talk about it, it reminds me of two things. One is that in one of the um, episodes that Alan did on the Allocator series, uh, where he spoke with the CIO of the Hawaiian pension plan, um, she actually said she couldn't care less about buckets. I mean, it means nothing. And what really matters is what is the strategy and what does it do? And I've always been curious when I met with uh, clients and potential clients and they talk about how they're diversifying their equity exposure into these hedge funds, but they're obviously hedge funds trading equities. And I always thought it's weird that you think you're going to get a much different return if you're investing exactly in the same things, but now you're just doing it in private equity or you're doing it in some kind of Hedge fund that, that trades equities, um, and I think this is the frustration that I've always felt would come because you're not really diversifying. You it just you just call it something different. And I think in particular with private equity, I think that there could be if this quote unquote sort of bear market continues, um, and if interest rates continues to sit at a higher level uh, uh, than what we've seen for for many decades. Um, I think there could be some skeletons in that area where people thought that they were getting some kind of really nice, steady, lower risk entry to having equity exposure. And then they're going to find out, ooh, maybe it was because they weren't mark to market uh, the way you would normally do. Um, so once you start doing that, uh, the results look pretty different.
0: Yeah. I think that uh, I don't think there's a CTA on the planet, Niels. You may disagree, but uh, that trades. Classic trend following that whose primary objective is to find the outliers and use the loose pants that allow those outliers and that uh, produce uh, a lot of volatility. So maybe we should be thankful and just uh, so part of your podcast, part of what you and I do, and I do on Twitter Spaces, is we lay it all out. You can do it, it's hard psychologically. And then, you know, it's kind of like, here's a way to start your own do-it-yourself business or your trading strategy. And it's not going to be negatively impacted necessarily by large CTAs doing the same thing. And so maybe I should be more happy that I can not only continue trading uh, rough rice and milk, uh, and because I don't have a lot of assets under management, but also that my trading is, I'm not usually going to be competing so much with these large CTAs. Um, I think you know, what we saw this week was uh, part of the problem that Rich brought up, which is there's a lot of uh, convergent strategies that uh, bought the stocks, that bought the bonds. And some of these convergent strategies are embedded inside the large CTAs. So they're causing us a little bit of, of anxiety. It's not too many trend-following CTAs. It's, it's the number of people who don't allow those trends to go. It wasn't CTA classic trend following that hurt us this week. It was the opposite of that. And embedded in some of the larger CTAs is this convergent non-trend following strategy, i.e. vol management, that probably caused us a little bit of anxiety when the markets, all those good trends started to rally this week. So it's not all bad. My life is so great and it's fun uh, trading this strategy that's available to anyone and everyone. It's just that... uh, it's a classic example of here's the right thing to do, but nobody really wants to do it.
1: Yeah, and, and actually, I'm not going to push back too much on that. I think it, there's definitely uh, some truth in that. But what the only thing I would say is that I don't think the volume, even among the bigger CTAs that might have some strategies that are, quote unquote, reacting to this correction in 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 the bigger trends uh, in the last week or so. yeah that's going to be some of that there's going to be some short-term strategies jumping on uh, some of these moves. but I I still don't think that we as an industry are the ones setting the pace for the markets in terms of price. I think that they, these are completely different strategies and investors trying to buy the dip in bonds which is not completely unreasonable after the bonds have dropped like 30 40 points in the long bond futures markets uh, in the past uh, 8 or 9 months i mean you can't really say that that's not a uh, a better entry point than 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 before so i don't know i mean that that's just how it is but sometimes i do agree with you that this coincides with maybe some quote unquote other features, diversifying, quote-unquote, diversifying strategies within the trend follower uh, that gets triggered. So that definitely can happen. Um, Then there's another interesting uh, article or tweet that you um, talked about uh, this week uh, that I think also is quite interesting, which does impact, I think, some of um, participants in our industry. Because this this idea of a commodity supercycle I've certainly also heard this term being used as an argument for why trend followers should be doing well and why people should be investing more money with trend followers because we're heading into this commodity super cycle. So tell me your thoughts on this and and I'll see where, where we go with that.
0: Yeah, I hope you can help me because I have a. I was out walking the dog this morning and I was like telling myself everything I wanted to say on the, about this and I'm sure I'll forget something, darn it, okay. but... Uh, yeah, I don't like that term. I never liked it. I thought it was a bad idea. It's subjective. It's prediction. It's fundamentals. It's, it's a story. It, we, it, I don't like stories. As much as we say we, we need a story, we need a narrative, and I don't like them because it gives the false impression, are you going to do anything with it? You're a CTA. You're talking about supercycle. Are you going to have this influence your trading? Well, I'm not. I'm going to follow my rules. Well, then why are we talking about it? It's a narrative. And so, and it's a promise. Hey, you know, uh, we're in this super cycle. So, I'm, or if you're going to hang on to some of these trades beyond your uh, trailing stop, then that doesn't sound right. And uh, we're not. And you could anticipate a month ago, a, years, a year ago, that look, you know, this is what happens in trends. They don't go forever, they don't go in some sort of super cycle. I've never seen a super cycle trend in my life defined by the fact that my exit is going to be hit like i'm pretty flat these base metals and they're certainly in a super cycle i mean you can't even talk about nickel and zinc and copper and aluminum without well these things are in short supply we need them for green stuff and they're just keep going up well i know i'm going to get flat before any sort of super cycle occurs and i and i am so now what do i say to people well, why'd you get out? You said it was a super cycle. Well, I'm following my system. Then why do you even mention super cycle? You're not, not going to do anything with that except get me all jazzed up. It's a marketing slogan. And it's outside of what sober trend followers and money managers and CTAs and risk managers should be talking about. Um, unless you give that disclaimer that I've just given, this is just trash talk and it doesn't mean anything. Uh, and it's the improper way of looking at things. Um, we are entry, exit, stop loss, systematic, sub- objective rules, not this narrative. And of course, no, I'm going to have to get back in, hopefully, at the highs in a three months, six months on some of these base metals, for, for example. Great. And they'll take off and maybe have another one or two year run. Yes. Why don't you just
1: stay in them the whole time? It's a supercycle. <laughs> Who told you that? You did. <laughs> I think that uh, I mean, I think you touched on some some very important points there. Uh, so let me try and um, answer the question about why we talk about supercycles, and I don't mean you and I talk about super cycles, but why there is this idea of a supercycle and why some CTAs will put that in their narrative when they talk about. It. First of all, let's just be completely um, frank about it. When there is a story, People listen, uh, when when a manager shows up and say, "Actually, I have I have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow in the markets." People don't listen um, as as much, right? Because they, you know, what can I use that for? So the reason I think the super cycle is an interesting narrative, and um, or meaning that why I think some people bring it up in our space is, um, I think commodities is one of those asset classes that are very hard to get exposure to, at least historically, it's getting easier, but it's very hard for investors to get exposure to commodities. Even institutional investors, they're not going to go in and trade futures on cotton or whatever it might be. So I can see the marketing argument for for from a CTA's point of view saying, well, if you invest with a CTA, uh, you're going to get exposure to all of these commodities. So if there is a commodity super cycle, you're going to be, you know, you can depend on us to be long. So right, I do yeah. understand, what, Yeah. If, if. Yeah. yes. So I do understand that, um, and I think that must be the reason why you know these things keep popping up, right? Um, because no, as I don't, you rightly see, yeah, there's no I guarantee.
0: No, I think it's impossible to get profitable exposure to commodities unless it's trend following, um, and 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 what does it remind you of? You know what it reminds me of? Narratives like this It reminds me of Kathy Wood, Kathy Wood, Ark. And that's what she does. She says, well, here's what the market is doing. And you just have to listen to the narrative. I'm down 50% or whatever, but it's the narrative that's ruling. And CTAs are, no, 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 it's the exact opposite. Um, It is not the narrative. It is the price. It is what the price is doing. And we don't want to water down and muddy and confuse uh, just for marketing purposes.
1: Yeah, no, I mean that's a definitely a fair point. Um I think that the point gets even more challenging uh when it comes from the and and I know I'm going to offend some people that I actually like that have been on the podcast so I'm not I'm not doing it to do that. But it is even more troublesome when you think about long-only commodity products, right? Because they 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 will make a lot of money when you get into these uh, commodity supercycles, but what they fail to do is to hang on to it because a lot of these commodity super turns into 10 years of bear market for commodities and um, and that's not a good thing so actually I, I will say that the key advantage that people that, commo- that CTAs or trend followers bring to the commodity space is our long and short um, exposure to commodities I think long term that is the way to trade commodities certainly not long only uh, even though right now people will say, "Oh, I'm just going to get exposure to commodities because, as you rightly say, they're in a super cycle. but I don't <laughs> think that's a good idea.
0: No, uh, it's 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 unfortunate. This is my, I guess, my major point. It's unfortunate coming from trend following CTAs. Yeah, it. Yeah, I don't think it's a good idea. It sends a mixed message. You're not ever going to pay attention to it. And I could imagine, like, my gosh, look how much money the CTA's made short some commodity in 2022 and like, how did you do that? I thought you were calling for a commodity super cycle. And I would just say, yeah, but I never was gonna, that didn't mean anything to me. It didn't mean anything. No, heck no, I, I would never, uh, never pay attention to some, if it happens, it doesn't need, we don't need to have that opinion in order to make money from these markets. I bought the soybeans in November of 2020 and I had no clue that we were into a, a commodity run you know, I should have been smarter and doubled my positions. Uh, but, And in fact, if you look at it, the CTAs, the commodities had underperformed. That, that sector had not made money probably in 10 years, and we still had it in the portfolio. How weird is that?
1: <laughs> it reminds me of another narrative, Jerry, that you will also uh, recognize, and that is uh, a few years back. Uh, after interest rates had gone down for three decades or whatever, and people were looking at CTA saying, "Well, you made all your money from being long bonds," and and then parts of the industry came out saying, uh, "Oh, but the day interest rates start to go up, see, trend followers going to get killed. They're not going to make. They're not going to be able to keep up making all this money because they made it from being long bonds and the roll yield and all of that stuff." And hey, now we are in a period of time where interest rates are going up uh, like crazy. And of course, we know that trend followers are certainly benefiting from that. So we have all these narratives. We know it serves a purpose. That's just how it is. As you rightly say, Kathy Wood has her narrative. The Bitcoiners have their narratives and... And we all have it, right? And you and I have our narratives, right? So, I mean, we're all guilty at some point, even though we obviously try to be as objective as we can. Um, but it actually brings to the next point, uh, I think, that you tweeted about, and that is how does trend following adapt to market regime changes? Um, because that's the whole point, right? We may be in a commodity super cycle, but we're not going to stay in a commodity super cycle forever. So do you remember what that was all about?
0: Yeah, I think that a lot of people are thinking that things are changing and things are broken apart uh, with the Fed having to face inflation and pay the price for their entry and their manipulation or their activity in the markets, to say the least. And uh, the quote from this article was, this is an entirely different situation and no one's coming to rescue this time. This is actually caused by a normalization of policy settings. Which is just a normal business cycle, but people haven't had one of those for more than a decade. And sort of changing your portfolio around and recognizing this change in supply side and commodities and int- increases in rates and all of these major themes and changes that are going on in the economy, this is what's put out there as who gets this right and who is shifting the portfolio and saw these things coming as compared to. Uh, we sold the breakout. We bought the breakout. And uh, even when it happened, we had no clue and all of this was not in the news cycle as to what what is and what was going to occur. And trend following uh, just adapts to this stuff and adjusts just by following its rules. And it's sort of built to uh, make these uh, regime changes uh, and to, uh, to accommodate them. Now, of course, is the old cliche is, that uh, trend following has predicted uh, nine out of the past five uh, trends. So uh, a lot of these trends we predict, they turn into small losses, and uh, we're not really pre- very good at predicting. It's just uh, we're, we're good at putting on the right trades and having the positions on, usually within a good period of time before it's
1: obvious of uh, the, the, the fundamental changes that are going on. The good thing about what the Fed has done recently, Jerry, is that they introduced a term that you and I can use now going forward forever, and that's every time we in a drawdown we'll just say it's transitory
0: yeah, yep transitory you uh one of your i think it was you and one of your guests who picked up on that transitory thing in one of the podcasts the most recent podcast I was listening to that um I need to go back and listen to that again, but <clears throat> I'm not even sure. There was, I think there was a debate of what uh, transitory meant. So it's, right. yeah, we don't want to get into these subjective word salad games uh, as trend followers. We, uh, we appreciate them. We understand them. We, it's cocktail party talk, but um, managing people's money and, and protecting capital, serious business. It must be done by objective rules.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Evidence-based investing, I guess you could call it. Now, let's say uh, maybe we want to lump in together. I have a feeling that the last couple of points uh, or topics that you raised um, might actually be lumped together because uh, it's about, you know, does trend following do well in the long run? And then you're quoting some uh, work that Rich did about, you know, the effect of com- compounding. And actually, I think you tied it into um, a, a very recent article or blog post by uh, one of our favorites, Morgan Housel, called "Keep It Going," um, and um, and where he I think talks a little bit about the interesting part about how athletes train in terms of whether they do uh, low intensity and medium and high intensity. So straighten that out all out for us, uh, Jerry, and and how we fit that into compounding of trend following returns. <laughs>
0: Well, it's hard. uh, uh, We take too much time to go through all of this, but maybe we can hit on a couple interesting things. You know, Housel is not a trend follower or commodities trader, but he has a tendency to come across some good ideas that are applicable to disciplined systematic investing. Uh, He says excellent returns for a few years is not nearly as powerful as pretty good returns for a long time. And few things can beat average returns sustained for a very long time. And I think that's really one of the secrets that Rich mentions a lot too is be in it for the long term. Don't focus too much on high sharp or maximizing today's trades or this particular trade, but use a good systematic approach. It does pretty good, but keeps you in the game for a very long time. 20 years is when it's sort of, after 20 years, it sort of starts this compounding. That's kind of almost a direct quote from Rich that after twenty years, what, after twenty years, and speaking to people today, even you know when I was a young person, hey, uh the first twenty years are sort of just a starting, and you're like, "No, no, no, I need my money now, I want to be successful now, but he's sort of saying that for a lot of people who are in the game for a long time that that's how you build up this terminal wealth uh in trade small, trade diversified, trade with the trend, and uh, protect your capital at all cost and let these markets and trends work for you. Your sharp may be so-so, uh, but staying in the game and allowing that compounding to occur, especially when the way that we get the most amount of compounding is these outlier trades. And I think there's um, another famous statement that something like Buffett has made most of his money or half of his money after he turns 60. Um,
1: I'm not sure I think if, it's it's like ninety eight percent of his money he's made yeah. after he turned sixty something yeah. like that It's yeah. it's
0: it's really crazy, but it's true of course I'm not sure yeah. if that's apples to apples, but it it definitely is uh the once again it's the market is and the reality is saying to us this is not going to feed your human desires it's not what you want life to be like, but this is sort of one of the lessons of life that if you want to Uh, maximize your potential, you have to have a very long-term point of view. There's nothing that important about today's activity. And you want to design your strategy so to make sure there's nothing that, that important. You want to have lots of different markets, lots of different opportunities, small bets all around, which, once again, help you to stay in the game.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I actually, I like the uh, the other uh, analogy that um, uh, Morgan Housel used, where he talks about that almost 89% of the time, you know, athletes train very, with very light intensity. And you could actually, you know, put that into perspective with trend following. I mean, most of the time, we're kind of underwater, we're not doing a lot. And then you have periods like you've had for the last six months. And that's where a lot of the return will come from. And that's kind of what he would then refer to as maybe high-intensity training, and that's what we do, Um, but only for a few uh, weeks or days uh, of the year. That's where all the action is. And it kind of turns back to this other exercise people can do, um, and that is if you take the return stream of, say, the S&P, or if you take the return stream of a trend follower, if you just take out the best 10 days or the best 10 months, if it's monthly returns for a trend follower, even over like a 30 year period, if you miss those 10 months, your returns are going to be dramatically lower than for those who just stayed the course. And, you know, so very good lessons for sure. And this is also, of course, why we always encourage people to have a core allocation of trend following in their portfolios at all times. Um, And and
0: that's why I said earlier that one of the most important things about trend following is never missing a trade. You cannot yeah. allow your money management, your overtrading, your emotions, or anything, because you're talking about five or 10% of the trades. And if you pass on a trade, t- trust me from
1: experience, it will be a good one. <laughs> trust me. Yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. We've. We're trying to provide all this information, Jerry, by sharing all the things that we've been through that we hope people will uh, avoid in their own journey for sure. I think that being said that the journey for today is about to uh, come to an end, but never um, before we just run through where we are in terms of... Of performance, the Beta Fifty Index, despite giving back some performance this week, as of Thursday night, um, it's still up 1.51 percent for the month, up 16.87 for the year. Um, and I think Friday actually was a pretty flat day, uh, plus minus quarter percent for most managers. Sogin CTA Index up 2.39 percent for the month, up 22 percent for the year. The Trend Index up 3.59 for the month and up 30.25 still for the year and the short term traders index up 1.77 for the month up 11.48% for the year and the trend barometer that you can find on my website is uh, showing 59 at the close of business yesterday friday so uh, it's still a strong environment so let's see if performance picks up to into the end of the month um MSCI World Index did pick up this week, but it's still down 6.15% for the month and down almost 19% for the year. And the World Government Bond Index also picked up this week, but still down 1.8% for the month and still down probably double digit, I would imagine, for the year. Um, On that note, we're going to wrap up this conversation. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review, or Spotify. Most importantly, come back and listen to more episodes um, during the week. There are plenty in the back catalogue for you to dive into. Next week, I'm joined by Rob, so uh, make sure you keep your questions coming. You can email them uh, to info at toptradersonplot.com and we'll do our best to answer them. And of course, make sure you follow all of us on Twitter. From Jerry and me, thanks ever so much for listening. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other.